Chapter Forty Nine of the Inevitable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock. The Inevitable by Louis Capurus. Translated by Alexander Texiera de Matos. The Inevitable Chapter Forty Nine. It was twelve o'clock when Cornelie woke that morning. The sun was piercing the golden slit in the half-parted curtains with tiny eddying atoms. She felt dog-tired. She remembered that Mrs. Uxley, on the morning after one of these parties, left her free to rest. The old lady herself stayed in bed, although she did not sleep, and Cornelia lacked the smallest capacity to rise. She remained lying where she was, heavy with fatigue. Her eyes wandered through the untidy room, her handsome ball-dress hanging listlessly, limply over a chair, at once reminded her of yesterday. For that matter, everything in her was thinking of yesterday. Everything in her was thinking of her husband, with a tense, hypnotized consciousness. She felt as if she were recovering from a nightmare, a bout of drunkenness, a swoon. It was only by drinking glass after glass of champagne that she had been able to keep going, had been able to dance with Brock's, had been able to lead the figure when their turn came. But it was not only the champagne. His eyes also held her up, had prevented her from fainting, from bursting into sobs, from screaming and waving her arms like a madwoman. When he had taken his leave, when everybody had gone, she had collapsed in a heap and been taken to bed. The moment she was no longer under his eyes, she had felt her misery and her weakness, and the champagne, as it were, suddenly clouded her brain. Now she lay thinking of him in the dejected slackness of her overwhelming morning fatigue, and it seemed to her as if her whole Italian year had been an interlude, a dream. She saw herself at the Hague again, with her pretty little face and her little flirting ways and her phrases always to the point. She saw their first meeting and how she had at once fallen under his influence and been able to flirt with him, because he laughed at her little feminine defences. He had been too strong for her from the first. Then came their engagement. He laid down the law and she rebelled, angrily, with violent scenes, not wishing to be controlled, injured in her pride as a girl who had always been spoiled and made much of. And then he had subdued her as though with the rude strength of his fist, and always with a laugh on his handsome mouth, until they were married, until she created a scandal and ran away. He had refused to be divorced at first, but had consented later, because of the scandal. She had freed herself. She had fled. The feminist movement, Italy, Duco. Was it a dream? Was the great happiness, the delightful harmony, a dream, and was she awakening after a year of dreams? 
Was she divorced or was she not? She had to make an effort to remember the formalities. Yes, they were legally divorced. But was she divorced? Was everything over between them? And was she really no longer his wife? Why had he done it? Why had he pursued her after seeing her once at Nice? Oh, he had told her, during that cotillion, that endless cotillion, he had become proud of her when he saw how beautiful she was and how smart, how happy she looked driving in Mrs. Uxley's or the Prince's elegant Victoria. It was then that he had seen her, beautiful, smart and happy, and he had grown jealous. She, a beautiful woman, had been his wife. He felt that he had a right to her, notwithstanding the law. What was the law? Had the law taught her womanhood, or had he? And he had made her feel his right, together with the irrevocable past. It was all irrevocable and indelible. She looked about her, at her wit's end what to do, and she began to weep, to sob. Then she felt something gaining strength within her. The instinctive rebellion that leaped up within her like a spring which had at length recovered its resilience. Now that she was resting and no longer under his eyes, she would not, she would not, she refused to feel him in her blood. Should she meet him once more, she would speak to him calmly, very curtly, and order him to leave her, show him the door, have him put out of the door. She clenched her fists with rage. She hated him. She thought of Duco, and she thought of writing to him, telling him everything, and she thought of going back to him as quickly as possible. He was not a dream. He existed, even though he was living so far away, at Florence. She had saved a little money. They would find their happiness again in the studio in Rome. She would write to him, and she wanted to get away as quickly as possible. With Duco she would be safe. Oh, how she longed for him, to lie so softly and quietly and blissfully in his arms, against his breast, as in the embrace of a miraculous happiness. Was it all true, their happiness, their love and harmony? Yes, it had existed. It was not a dream. There was his photographs. There, on the wall, were two of his watercolors, the sea at Sorrento and the skies over Almalfi, done in those days which had been like poems. She would be safer with him. When she was with Duco, she would not feel Rudolph, her husband in her blood, for she felt Duco in her soul, and her soul would be the stronger. She would feel Duco in her soul, in her heart, in all the most fervent part of her life, and gather from him her uppermost strength, like a sheaf of gleaming sword-blades. Already now, when she thought of him with such longing, she felt herself growing stronger. She could have spoken to Brox now. Yesterday he had taken her by surprise, had squeezed her between himself and that looking-glass till she had seen him double and lost her wits and been defeated. That would never happen again. That was only due to the surprise. If she spoke to him again now, she would triumph. 
thanks to what she had learned as a woman who stood on her own feet. And she got up and opened the windows and put on her dressing gown. She looked at the blue sea, at the motley traffic on the promenade, and she sat down and wrote to Duco. She told him everything, her first startled meeting, her surprise and defeat at the ball. Her pen flew over the paper. She did not hear the knock at the door, did not hear Urania come in carefully, fearing lest she should still be asleep and anxious to know how she felt. Excitedly, she read out part of her letter and said that she was ashamed of her weakness of yesterday. How she could have behaved like that she herself was unable to understand. No, she herself could not understand it. Now that she felt somewhat rested and was speaking to Urania, who reminded her of Rome, and holding her long letter to Duco in her hand, now she herself did not understand it all, and wondered which had been a dream, her Italian year of happiness or that nightmare of yesterday. End of chapter 49